Have you had the experience of a close friend who had left Christianity? Certainly there will be some who don't act like Christians. And you will find people who once claimed Christ and now they do not. And likely if you talk to them just a couple years prior, they may tell you that something like that would never happen to me. Some may leave for logical reasons, but often sin is not far behind, and many times it's the draw. There have been some high-profile cases recently of people leaving the faith, declaring their exit from Christianity. And what's striking is not just how bold they are, but also just the way that it's almost advertised like a scripted marketing campaign. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Now, we don't know the exact situation with Demas in particular, but we do know firsthand those who have walked away from the faith that they once held and those who have left to pursue the world. So what are we to say when this happens? What's the root cause? Is it sin? Is it a honest disagreement with the fundamental precepts of Christianity? In this week's passage, Paul addresses false teaching and he demonstrates for us a response to what he calls plausible arguments. And what we need to keep in mind is that this is not just a struggle of worldviews. The battle involves real people. Their lives are at stake here. False teaching has a real impact on individuals. It intersects not just with our intellect, but also this draw towards sin. And we're called not just to hide from the fight, but to engage in it. James closes his epistle with these words. He says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back... Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Brothers and sisters, we are called to this work. And in this week's passage, Paul is giving a warning in the face of arguments that would cause people to wonder in this way. So let's read through Colossians chapter 2. And let's see what Paul has to say. I'm going to start in verse 4. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, By putting off the body of flesh 
by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So in this section, Paul exhorts us to live the new life. But this exhortation is set against the backdrop of false teaching. And we're exhorted to follow Christ rather than being swayed by a teaching that is opposed to Christ. Paul uses the word not according to Christ. And so this week we're going to look at how we are warned against this false teaching. You see that in verses 4 and 5 and also in verse 8. We're going to see that we're exhorted to follow Christ in verses 6 and 7. And then we're to live in light of our union with Christ in verses 9 through 15. So let's look at verses 4, 5, and 8 again. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. And then in verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And so here in verse 4, we see this not to delude with plausible arguments. And in verse 8, not to be held captive by philosophy and empty deceit. So Paul was concerned about the arguments that the Colossians were hearing. He saw it as a smooth talk that might convince some. And those thoughts were presented as philosophically grounded, but they were not grounded in sound theology. And they were really an open door for heresy. And so those who presented these arguments knew that it was empty deceit for them to push their system of thought upon the church. And Paul uses that word explicitly, empty deceit. Right? Their propagation of heresy was deceitful because they were working to undermine the teaching of Christ. And so Paul goes further by giving his thoughts about the philosophy. Right? He mentions three things here. According to human tradition... These were human attempts to arrive at the truth. For Paul, this was done outside of what had been revealed by God about himself. It was a form of legalism. Right? In, in this false worldview, the actions you take were what was important, not the work of Christ. And we'll see a little more of that in the next section that we look at next time. But follow the rules was their solution to the problem of life. And then two, it was according to the elementary spirits of the world. Elementary principles could include basic elements of the world and of matter, but it also likely includes this connection with the spirit realm here. The idea that these spirits could affect the physical world. And so whoever can manipulate those spirits would be very powerful. And giving worship to such spirits as opposed to the gospel itself, it brings Christ down. And it elevates the spirit world and the physical world in response. We don't have to fear spirits because we have Christ, the creator of the world. 
And if there was any doubt, Paul makes it explicit. At its heart, the heresy was non-Christian. He says that it was not according to Christ. So it was not something that could be believed alongside the Christian message. It was, in fact, opposed to Christ. So when you sum it up, a human philosophy focused on the elementary principles of the world has no need of the Christ of Scripture. And the mixing of this false teaching with Christianity robbed the Christian message of its power, of its heart, of its strength to save. The worship of the one true God would be replaced by something else, the performance of acts of devotion. And so the heresy was directly opposed to the Christian message of reconciliation with God through the work of Christ. There have been many false teachings that have entered the church over the centuries. And we're probably pretty familiar with something like the encroachment of liberalism over the past 100, 150 years. Right? It started with modernism and scientism, almost a, a religious dependence on science. And then people wanted to accommodate their Christianity to these new worldviews. But they were fundamentally different. They, they made different assumptions about life. Where does life come from? Who created the world? What are the implications? They go everywhere. But people wanted to continue in their religion, at least at first. And so they made accommodations to what they believed. And they thought, what's good in religion? Morality. We'll we'll preach morality because that's a benefit to people. We may not believe in the things that we used to believe in, but there's some utility in being moral. And so we will preach morality. And so the narrative of redemption in Scripture was replaced by this call to be good. In fact, there was a concerted effort even among like, children's Sunday school literature in the 1800s to, to make this transition where, where modernists were trying to re- replace the, uh, the curriculum with morality. And I've seen this before. You know, it can become something that you think is the new normal. It's a normal way of teaching. You just assume that's how it's done. Thankfully, there's been a lot of progress in this, especially in the last... 10 years, but when they did this, ultimately they lost the gospel. They turned away from Christ. So do not be deluded by plausible arguments or held captive by philosophy and empty deceit. So in every age, there's been examples of accommodating to popular opinion and what is acceptable in each era. And we need to be sensitive to see our own cultural context and how we may be influenced by those plausible arguments. Sometimes the arguments that are the most persuasive to us, the most plausible, are those that are familiar. Those arguments that match our cultural upbringing. And we take them without questioning. A danger in conservative churches is to conflate our nationalism or our love of country with our Christianity, there's a common sort of religious understanding that's not necessarily distinctly Christian. It's even based on the, it's not even based on the Bible. It's more of a cultural version of it that that we're used to in the culture of our nation. And so it's often caricatured by non-Christians who look at it and say, see, look at Christians. They don't have a foundation for what they believe. It's just whatever is tradition, And they don't care about other people. 
And this happens when there's plausible arguments that are conflated, even if they are familiar ones. All right, so what about the other side, right? A, a one that is starting to hit us more and more is something like critical theory. Right? It's an example today of uh, a philosophy that focuses on the group above the individual. And it divides people into groups instead of seeing them as made in God's image and having a common heritage in Adam. So in critical theory, there is merit and shame. And that merit and shame is assigned to each group. And each group even has their own version of truth. And so people in our day find it appealing because it speaks to certain cultural issues that they're concerned about. It recognizes, for instance, that oppression is evil. And that's something that the biblical worldview agrees with. But what they may not realize is that it comes with a bigger philosophical shift. They're adopting a whole new worldview as they accept it. Something that can grow out of a genuine concern can end up changing our whole understanding of reality. And now, we can have genuine concern for others and not be impacted by foreign alien philosophies, right? The philosophy of the day. There is value to self-evaluation, right? There is value to being sensitive to our sin or being concerned about others. But critical theory is a little different because it's fixated on oppression and liberation from that oppression. And so those who are a part of the perceived dominant group, they have negative moral credit applied to them. And they're considered biased by definition. And those who are a part of the oppressed group have positive moral credit, and they're considered objective by definition. And so the word oppression is redefined, because someone who's a part of the dominant group who may have never caused violence or oppression against somebody else, by definition, is considered an oppressor, right? So an example could be taken from the abortion debate, where men are said to not be able to speak to issues of abortion because they don't have credibility in that area. So this is one kind of plausible argument in view today. But whatever the version of it, whether it's liberation of oppressed groups or something else, plausible arguments, they begin with a different starting place. They interpret, they interpret the world differently. And so the biblical worldview begins with God, the creator, and the reality of sin. God, the creator of the world, who created men and women in his image and has revealed himself to them. And that means that there is a fixed truth that belongs to God. The biblical worldview continues with this reality of sin and redemption in Christ. And this is a different, and I would argue, a more comprehensive starting place than that which is offered by plausible arguments. And so Paul gives this answer to such plausible arguments here in Colossians. He calls us to find our identity in Christ. And he wants us to find our identity in being created in God's image, but as a part of a fallen people who have found redemption in Christ. And that message is offered to the whole world. So biblical Christianity does positively address these pressing concerns, but in a radically different way than competing worldviews. Christianity values people as created in God's image 
and calls individuals from different backgrounds into this new community. And so let's look at how Paul responds to the plausible arguments of his day. All right. First, he responds with the work of Christ and our participation in that work. And then he goes on to talk about how we are to live the Christian life. And that's how he rounds out the rest of the book, the rest of Colossians. So the work of Christ is the focus of this section. And the Christian life is the focus that we'll be heading towards later. But now Paul uses some unique vocabulary in this section. And the question is, why? It's likely that he's addressing the arguments of the heretics using their own words and reframing them in light of the gospel and in light of the work of Christ. And so Paul is trying to show the Colossians that Christ is the true fulfillment of the law. Christ is the head over all creation. And this is addressing the two main arguments that are being made And we are united with him, and therefore we should walk in him. Walk in him. Your life is bound to his. Your hope in the future is bound in him. Therefore, walk in him. So these false teachings, they were grounded in a tradition that was focused on the physical and the spiritual world apart from God the creator. And it was a partial view of creation that saw our struggle in terms of these fallible opponents. You had to outmaneuver them. And that is, to be successful, you manipulate people and you manipulate spirits. So there's these two issues here. Living under the law, the manipulation of people, and being subject to supernatural spirits, which means you have to manipulate them to get what you want. And you may remember in the first section of Colossians where we discuss how the physical world and the spirit world seem to have been understood and emphasized by the false teachers, but not the God who created the world. One version of this is to bring Christ down to the level of a spirit being. Another is to emphasize the outward forms of religion, the things that you do. So the Colossian heresy may have conflated these two, legalism and spiritism. And it's one's adherence to the rules that gained the ritual purity necessary to manipulate the spirits. To have dominion over the elementary principles of the world. And when Paul says that this is not according to Christ, he is not kidding. Here's an example. There's been a critique in recent weeks of what's been known as evangelical purity culture. Right? The, argument is that in the 1990s, people were told to maintain purity for the sake of a future benefit, and now people who are not married, and years of their life have gone by, they feel like they've lost time, and that the promise hasn't been kept to them, and now they are mad, and they are tweeting about it. But here's the problem. Arguments like this point to a kind of ritual purity. A purity that says that if you maintain purity, then you will have a certain cachet before God. You will have a a certain um, merit by which God will bless you. The classical Christian ethic is not the issue. It's that some have used cheap, moralistic, and manipulative arguments 
that is the problem. And so these arguments are not according to Christ. And usually they take on a more legalistic flair. The answer is not to abandon the Christian ethic or to leave Christianity, as some have done. The answer is that we should do better to point people to Christ and the implications of the gospel. And that's exactly where Paul takes us in the latter parts of Colossians. Paul wanted to establish them to see the firmness of their faith in Christ. So let's look at verses 6 and 7. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So another way we could approach this is ask ourselves, what's the key problem that is being faced here? What's the problem that all of mankind faces? Right? Some give a different problem, something other than sin or the fall. Others give a different solution to the problem. Does human tradition deal with your sin? Do spirits deal with your sin? Those were the, the plausible arguments that Paul was dealing with. But what about the plausible arguments of our day? Does adherence to cultural norms deal with our sin? How about the rejection of those norms? Because right? there's people that are rejecting those norms today. Does that deal with your sin? No, only Christ deals with our sin. And so, what do we know about the Colossian church from this section? Paul says three things about them. He says, first, remember that you have received the Lord Jesus. He also says, be rooted and built up in him, established in the faith. And then he says that they are to abound in thanksgiving. So, remember that you have received the Lord Jesus. Notice he says, Lord Jesus here, and it's descriptive of Jesus. Don't just read over words like that, right? We read them as titles or, or biblical language, and we just maybe don't give them the emphasis that we could, right? We need to understand what it means, especially in light of chapter 1, because this is one of the major points of chapter 1. Chapter 1 was pointing out that Christ is the head. He's the head of all things. He's the head of the church. So if they've received him, then they are united with him, and they have a future hope. Right. Then he talks about how we are to be rooted and built up in him. And these are two metaphors that are used elsewhere. Rooted, you know, in, in John, Christ is the vine. We must be connected to the root. All right? Our faith must be in Christ. In Psalm 1, you know, the trees planted by streams of nourishing water. They are rooted and then the imagery of being built up. We are God's building. Right? Built by a wise master builder. We build upon the foundation that is Christ. From 1 Corinthians. And so being rooted and built up, we are established in the faith. And that was Paul's desire for them. And then third, we are to abound in thanksgiving. So there, there's actually a, a progression here. They, they have received the Lord... Paul wants to see them established, and then there is a response. Right? Thanksgiving is, is the response and evidence of their faith. Right? Paul's building a cumulative argument based on who Christ is and their participation in Christ. So in light of that, we are to live in light of the new birth. Now, we, we read some from Hebrews 3 earlier. For we have come... 
to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm till the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts in the rebellion. So what does it look like to harden one's heart? What leads you there? I'm going to tie this back into what Paul is saying because I think that the solution ties back into how Paul is addressing the heresy. Okay? So this is part of what Paul is warning about. Now, D.A. Carson gives three good questions to ask someone who is contemplating abandoning their faith. The first question he asks is, what have you been reading for the past two years? That's a good question, right? What are you feeding yourself? And this is more than books. It definitely includes books, but it also includes things like social media, right? What, what are you spending your time thinking over, murmuring over? What are you feeding your heart? What dominates your mind? What are you acclimating yourself to? His second question is, with whom are you sleeping other than your spouse? Now, that's a pretty specific question, maybe a little too specific, but I get his point, right? What hidden sin is there in your life? What sin have you been pursuing? What commitments have you pushed away or rationalized away? People are able to rationalize just about any kind of sin in their life. It becomes their new normal. So the third question is, when was the last time you read the Bible? And when did you stop praying? So the first two questions deal with those issues that I opened with. The issue of sin and the issue of false teaching. And now we get to what should be taking their place, the intake of God's word and the practice of spiritual disciplines. And so these are things that help to shape us, to mold us. What is molding you? Is it God's word and cultivating a relationship with him or is it something else? Something that you haven't admitted to. Something that has not yet been revealed. This is why Paul exhorts us to walk in Christ. It directly addresses the wandering hearts that are tempted by plausible arguments. And so Paul expounds on what he has said up until this point. In verses 9 through 15, he says we're to live in light of our union with Christ. So he explains it a little more. To make his case, he returns to this concept of union with Christ that we talked about last week, or last time I preached, a month ago. So let's look at verses 9 through 15. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also... You were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Having forgiven us all of our trespasses, 
by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So notice that those last two verses, he's actually addressing those plausible arguments again. He's talking about how Christ fulfills the legal demands. And he has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. So Paul's tying that back in, even as he points to our union with Christ. He's showing how our union with Christ answers the false teaching. But let's go back to verse 9. Jesus is God. It says, for in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. So Paul has a lot to say about who Christ is in this section. The fullness of deity dwells in him. And so Paul is specifically excluding the idea of a demigod, somebody who has some amount of deity that's laid upon him and he has some superpowers, almost like a, a superhero in our modern context, but is not the creator God of the universe. So Paul has already established Christ's participation in creation in chapter 1. And now he explicitly is stressing that Christ is completely God. Now, he's not addressing the Trinity here. He's not addressing that um, God is the Father, God is the Spirit. But what he does say is that the fullness of God dwells bodily. This is to say that the fullness of deity is present with Christ in his human body. God is without parts. So Jesus is not just infused with some amount of deity. He is fully God. So why does Paul bring this up in the middle of this argument? Why does he say this? Why, after all this dealing with um, the, the, the false teaching and then pointing to Christ and bringing up our union with Christ now, why does he bring up the deity of Christ? He specifically says, and you have been filled in him. Christ, the whole fullness of deity, dwells in him. And you have been filled in him. And so this speaks to the mystical union. And we, we talked about union with Christ in the last sermon, and here Paul brings it up again. This union with Christ is a key part of Paul's argument. Salvation of Christ is greater than we can imagine. It's not just an earthly victory. It's not a victory over spirits. It's the restoration of God's purpose for men and women. It involves our fellowship with God, who created all things. So this isn't just a philosophy of life, but it's the unifying purpose and plan for all of history. So those who are in Christ participate in this reality. And then in verses 11 through 13, he further develops this explanation by explaining the tie-in to circumcision and baptism. First, Uh, the false teaching may have involved some sort of Jewish teaching in some way, and there's some indications of that. But Paul addresses how Christ fulfills the law for us. Specifically, he points to circumcision. Now, in Romans chapter 2, Paul references circumcision there as well. And he says, But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This was not a new or novel idea. Moses understood this. Therefore, circumcise your hearts and don't be stiff-necked any longer, Moses says in Deuteronomy 10. 
So the idea here is that there's an inward change that's required. And that's what Paul's pointing to here in Colossians. A humbled heart. And he goes straight from there to this idea of baptism. Now some would try to connect baptism back to Old Covenant circumcision here. And I I don't think that's the point that's actually being made. I think it's actually the opposite point that's being made. It's more of an analogy to circumcision. It's a particular kind of circumcision of the heart. And this connects with the idea of the new birth. A changed heart that comes along with it. So baptism is a picture of that reality. And so Paul is linking the new birth with a changed heart and with this picture of baptism. And so baptism does picture the new birth. Paul goes into more detail on that in Romans 6. But here, even here, he he has this idea of being buried, that is, death to old self, and raised to new life. So baptism is not just a washing. It's an emblem of our union with Christ. It perfectly pictures this new reality of new birth. And that's why we baptize believers. Those who have professed faith in Christ. So Paul's pointing out how earth-shattering of a life change has occurred in those who have trusted in Christ. How can a false teaching that emphasizes the legalistic performance of acts and the manipulation of spirits compare with union to Christ. Do we really understand this? If you are in Christ, this is who you are. Live in light of the new birth. Paul moves from here to talk about victory in Christ in verses 14 and 15. So what was enticing the Colossian Christians was this form of legalism and dependence upon spirits, but That may have been what was tempting to them. It would have made them devalue Christ and what he had done for them. Christ nailed your trespasses to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. We do not have to fear superstitions. Yet, are we enticed to follow some other gospel? Is there a plausible argument or a philosophy of today that is tempting to you? It's hard for anyone to recognize or be able to see clearly what is enticing them. What is enticing you to follow some other human tradition? Some philosophy? People will even rationalize these enticements and may even try to make them compatible with Christ. But the truth is that it's what their heart favors. And so we produce a Christ that looks more like us rather than challenging ourselves to grow in Christ-likeness. Brothers and sisters, all the fullness of deity dwells in him. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. There is nothing, there is no truth. There's no philosophy, there's no way of life. There's no form of obedience. There's no greater understanding that exceeds Christ. So if you've had your heart change, if you've been united with him, then there's nothing that the performance of empty acts gains us. Legalistic rules and the service do not bring us to Christ. At least that was the plausible argument that Paul was dealing with in the context. So watch out for ideas that undermine the gospel. 
turn to Christ, but note that this is not a blind faith, right? Our, we have a firm faith that's fixed upon firm promises. And let's meditate on the reality of union with Christ. Know that his victory is applied to us. And this is a change in our reality. It's not some amount of merit that we obtain. And really, each of those applications align with the three points we talked about this morning. But I'll add one more application here. Understand that what we do as a church specifically points to Christ. Right? Forms such as baptism and communion, even the way we conduct our service, the preaching of God's Word, our life together ought to all point to Christ. So now, in the rest of Colossians, Paul will move on to talk about what the Christ-centered life ought to look like. And it's very different than these empty acts that he's been dealing with. And so there's some implications for the Christian life. I'm just going to outline briefly the next several sections to show how Paul is using what he's talked about up through this point as a jumping-off point for talking about implications for the Christian life. First, Christ-centered devotion. In the next section, he finishes dealing with the heresy, and he contrasts this liberal—sorry, uh, uh, can't say it—legalism with devotion to Christ. And then, second, um, Christ-centered change to put to death what is earthly. See how that connects with the idea of baptism. And even the next section of chapter three, Christ-centered living, putting on the new self. Now, in Colossians in particular, there's a community aspect to that putting on the new self. And he eventually gets to 3.18 where he talks about Christ-centered relationships and how we're to live in love with one another. And then, closing out the book, there's an emphasis on Christ-centered mission, that we're to live with intentionality in our lives. And Philemon was very likely written at the same time as Colossians. And so I included that. It, it focuses on Christ-centered restoration, restoration for Onesimus, right? And Christ-centered forgiveness, forgiveness for Philemon. So all of these examples of working out what it means to walk in Christ, Right, really come out of everything we've covered up until this point that comes out of our union with him. So all these examples right, really should tie in to what we've been talking about the last few sermons. So are you influenced by human tradition or plausible arguments? First, understand that these philosophies are completely different than Christianity. And then recognize that if you mix Christianity, you don't end up with some form of Christianity. You may be able to keep the outward forms for a while, make it look like Christianity for a time, but you end up with something that's not Christian at all underneath. It may be moral, at least for a while. Right? It may be acceptable to society. It may look like Christianity for the outside, but it's not according to Christ. So where do you stand? Recognize that accountability is done in love. And know that when we wander, it's no small thing. There's great significance to the trajectory that we are on. Right? Let's not make light of that. And so James chapter 5, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. 
Paul's answer to false teaching has both negative and positive impact. He, he attacks the false teaching, but he positively gives a response. He shows that the deity of Christ and our union with him, and, and then he fleshes out what the Christ-centered life looks like. Brothers and sisters, cling to Christ. Cling to Christ with a firm faith that's based on a knowledge of the truth. And have a firm faith that's able to confront plausible arguments. So let's follow Paul's advice. Let me just restate the three points this way. Let's be on guard against false teaching. Let's hold firm to Christ. And let's live in light of our union with him. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.